Good morning. Greet you in Jesus' name. invite you to turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. Perhaps before I read the scripture that I'd like to look at this morning, I'm going to ask some questions for for those of us that are Christians, the question that I have is, have you ever been um, deeply upset or angry with someone or about a particular situation in your life? Probably all of us could say, yes, we have been. And then I would ask, well, what have you done about it? I found myself in those situations where, and maybe you have too, where you, maybe something happened and you keep reviewing that in your mind. And you keep coming up with arguments to defend yourself and to make sure that other person gets the point. And usually, uh, I find myself winning in those mental things that I'm doing. Have you ever struggled to forgive someone? Were you able to forgive or do you continue to struggle? So I would ask the question to you, what does it mean to forgive? What are some things that you have learned and maybe some helpful things that have enabled you to forgive. That's what I'd like to look at this morning, is forgiveness. I've entitled my message, Bitterness or Forgiveness. I could have asked the question, I should have maybe, is what is the opposite of forgiveness? And as I have studied for this message, I. I came up with what Scripture says is bitterness. Bitterness is the opposite. You can choose. You need to choose whether you're going to stay bitter or are you going to forgive. So let's look at Ephesians 4. I'm going to read five verses here, starting in verse 26, if you would follow along in your Bibles. And I thought of uh, maybe repeating each verse in the NIV. The NIV is perhaps more of a paraphrase than a translation. And I, I'm cautious about some of the things it says, but I thought it was helpful to understand this scripture when we, we could say maybe in, in more modern English. So that's what I'm doing. I hope nobody's offended by that. Ephesians 4.26 says, Be ye angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath. In your heart do not sin. 
Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. Verse 27, neither give place to the devil. And do not give the devil a foothold. Then verse 30, I'd like to jump to verse 30. It says, and grieve not the Holy Spirit of God. Whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Verse 31, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. And be kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God has forgiven you. Now let's just look at some of what these verses are saying. In verse 26 it says, Be ye angry is almost a Is that a command to be angry? Well, the NIV, I think, gives the proper meaning, perhaps more fully for us. It says, in your anger, don't sin. As I understand anger, it's an emotion. And so emotion, we respond emotionally. It's not that we decide, okay, I'm going to be joyful or I'm going to laugh or I'm going to do it. It's an involuntary response. So anger to a degree is that as well. There are things that perhaps make us angry and upset. We don't decide to be sad or happy or sympathetic or angry. It comes depending on what's happening about us. This does not mean that we have no control over our emotions. I found myself already angry enough. Someone said he was angry enough to bite a nail into. Well, I don't know if I could even do that. I don't think so, but if you know what it means. And then the phone rings and the voice gets different. We can control that part of it. And it sounds like we've just read Psalm 23. That's, we have that. We can control our emotions. Emotions. It says in verse 26, be angry and sin, sin not. Let's look at that. Sin not. It's our responsibility to not sin in our anger. Others may do wrong. We may become angry. But if we sin, we bear that responsibility is on us. Don't sin. In your anger, do not sin. And I would say that where anger rises, sin is never far away. It's, it, it's an emotion that, you know, Jesus, it says, he was angry at some things that were happening about him. And, but I would say when we're angry, we'll, we're, you know, the things that have happened in the heat of anger. People have done things that they regretted for life. Because that emotion, be careful 
when you're angry. Even non-Christian psychologists recognize the destructiveness of anger. And so they would say, well, go out and run a mile or beat on a pillow for a while. And sometimes, I don't know, that for a non-Christian that might help. But that's not solution to the problem. It doesn't always help. Uh, they would say, well, don't use some nonviolent expression. Don't hold anger inside. Don't beat up on your wife or throw books through the living room window. That's not a healthy way of responding. So they recognize that as well. In, Psalm, or in Proverbs 16, verse 32, it says, He that is slow to anger is better than the mighty. Now, I imagine he's talking about a mighty man as in a warrior or someone that is powerful. Well, it says to control, to be able to control your anger. And I think of, of anger as a problem that maybe us men have more. Now, I'm sure women get angry too at times, but I've even heard children or younger people say that's the issue with dad. He can get so angry at the times. Maybe there's us, us here this morning that hang our heads, talking about us a bit here. He that is slow to anger is better than the mighty. And we know people that don't get riled very quickly, but then there's others that are just kind of have a short fuse. We call it a short fuse. They get angry quickly. Well, here it says, if you're slow to anger, that's, be, that's better than the mighty. And he that ruleth his spirit than he that taketh a city. So we see here it is wise to control anger. In our passage that I read in verse 31, it says, we are told to put away anger. It's listed in that whole list of things. And in that, earlier in verse 25 and verse 26, it says, let not the sun go down on your wrath or your anger. Neither give place to the devil. Now, that's kind of interesting that it inserts that there. So is that a warning? What happens when we don't take care of our anger or control it? Why does it say that? Well, I believe that when you carry over, it says that you get rid of that. Don't, don't go to bed angry. Or Satan's going to get a foothold, it says, in your life. Why? I think it's because it turns into bitterness. And bitterness has a host of other sins that go along with it. And I think that's why it lists, it gives this whole list. Get rid of these, anger, malice, all these things go along with bitterness. Malice, grudges, ill will, suspicion, slander, gossip, murmuring, blame shifting, self-pity. I would just say that there is probably no inner attitude more destructive, friends, than bitterness. If anger carried over for one day to another is dangerous, 
how much more is anger that is carried over from year to year? Or I've even seen it, and you've probably seen it as well, from generation to generation. People who have become bitter. Hebrews 12, 14 says, Follow peace with all men and holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. NIV says, Make every effort to live in peace with all men and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Without holiness, it's very clear we won't see the Lord if we're not holy. Verse 15, looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. Now here it talks about bitterness as a root springing up. Root or root or however you say it. Springing up trouble you. I have, my wife and I have two sons living in Bonners Ferry with families. And we visited there once in October, the first part of October. And the aspens, trees, is that aspen is a tree, were changing color to a, just a golden, yellowish, orange. And, and the backdrop was the conifers or the pine trees were still green. And it was, the sun was bright and clear that day, and the sky was blue, and it was beautiful. Well, I've read since, and I think it is in Idaho, and I didn't double-check this, that conifer, the conifer, there's a conifer tree in Idaho that is the largest plant in the world. It covers, one plant covers... 17 acres. And it would appear as if it's a grove of trees. I don't think they're very big trees, but there's just trees all over. But the root, the underground, they're all connected. They're all one plant. And I thought of when I first started farming before the turn of the century, back in the 70s, one of our biggest issues in our fields was uh, quack grass. I'm not sure if you know what quack grass, I'm sure Kendall knows what uh, quack grass is. Quack grass was just a clump of nice green grass, maybe out in a bare soybean stubble field, and you could think, well, I'll run a tillage tool over that and I'll destroy that. But you know, those roots would catch on your tillage tool on the, on the shovels, and, as, and they would cling to that, and as you uh, cultivated the field, now and then a root would let loose. And guess what happened when that root let loose? It would grow, and it was tough to control. And so you, it would appear like I took care of the issue, but the roots were there, and that was the problem. It spread by the roots. I don't even think quack grass ever saw it come into seed. I think it just spreads by roots. Well, back then, I remember, it was new on the market, and everybody knows what Roundup is, but it came out back then, 
And that was able to control. Today, it's not a big issue for farmers because Roundup, systemically, you spray it on the, on the grass blade and three days later, you can till because it's already had its effect and it'll kill it. So that was a big help. That's not really what my message is about this morning. But I'm, the point is bitterness works underground. A root of bitterness. And it's not only destructive, but it's deceptive. Most bitter people do not even realize that they're bitter. Bitterness begins in the mind by reviewing hurtful things that have been done. We may think we're not bitter because we're no longer angry. The emotion of anger is gone, and we can be calmly say, I just recall working with a, an older brother. He struggled, I thought, with bitterness toward, toward another young brother. And I just said, well, you have, in talking about it and reading about it, I said, all the symptoms of bitterness are present. The things that happened in the past, his rehearsing, his victim mentality that goes with that. When you rehearse the wrongs that someone did, you're not forgiven, and it's really their fault. All my issues in life are because of that. That's bitterness, and you may not even realize where the fact is that you were not forgiving. You did not forgive that. Bitterness is essentially a pattern of blame. The more hurts are reviewed, the more entrenched the pattern of blame becomes. Eventually, that pattern of blame becomes a person's security. Well, I am because of, I am today, I can't, you know, it's all... In our mind, yeah, the emotion of anger is gone, but it's somehow we can even point back to the generation before us. It's his fault. It's their fault that I have this bitterness or that I'm, I'm blaming it. We don't even realize it's bitterness, perhaps. Others are responsible for who I am and for what I'm going through. Notice also in verse 15, it says, springing up trouble you and thereby... Many be defiled. So it's, it can spring up away from actually where it's, we think it is, and all of a sudden something pops up over here. That's how bitterness works. And we're not even aware maybe that's attached to the issue over here. <clears throat> so what is the solution? What can be done? Well, the best cure for, what do they say, an ounce of prevention is better than a pound of cure? Don't let it ever get started. Take care of that issue. It says in verse 14, follow peace and holiness as a Christian. There's tough, we're facing tough times here as a congregation. Let's admit it. But it says to follow peace and holiness. The pursuit of peace and holiness delivers the heart from the souring effects of bitterness. And church issues can make people bitter. And it can last a long time. Let's not go that way. 
instead of being consumed with how we have been hurt and who has done it and what has been the effects, the way to overcome is that we need to focus on how God may be glorified, how his grace can enable us, what his word is teaching us, what his Holy Spirit is fashioning in us, and how others may likewise be pointed to the Lord through our words, through our responses and our attitudes. When I see a brother responding like this, I am encouraged myself to respond that way. Friends, in a world of sin and sorrow, how we need biblical solutions. To save us from the devastation of bitterness, we need not to fail of the grace of God. We need rather to apply that grace. Scripture says that grace is sufficient for us. Now, if you don't mind, I'd like to go to Luke 17, if you want to turn there. Here Jesus is giving some teaching to the disciples. I'd like to read verse 1 and through verse 5. It says there, Then said he, Jesus speaking, said he unto the disciples, It is impossible, but that offenses... Now, now listen, brothers. It is impossible, but that offenses will come. But woe unto him through whom they come. It were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and he cast into the sea than that he should offend one of these little ones. Take heed to yourselves. If thy brother trespass against thee, rebuke him, and if he repent, forgive him. And if he trespass against thee seven times in a day, and seven times in a day turn again to thee, saying, I repent, thou shalt forgive him. And the apostles said unto the Lord, increase our faith. Why did they say that? Increase our faith. I'm going to, I think, reference that a little later here, maybe at the end of the message. Increase our faith. Jesus here taught and he practiced forgiveness. He didn't just teach things about forgiveness. And so his teaching and his example help us understand how we are to forgive. And I'd like to just look at several points that come through from this passage. Uh, the first point is everyone needs to forgive. You, you, you can't go through life without needing to forgive. At least you're not... I think as, as is speaking, he's speaking to his disciples. The point is, you're, you're going to need to forgive. Jesus said that offenses do come. What is an offense? Well, as I understand it, an offense is literally a hurdle in another's path that can potentially cause stumbling. It's that which another trips over. 
turtles usually refer to something bad that someone puts in your path. Offense, that's an offense. Jesus, I just want to clarify, Jesus was an offense to many of the Jews. He's not talking about that kind of offense. The problem wasn't what Jesus said or did. The offense was caused by hearts not willing to accept truth and repent. That's, I don't think, what the offense Jesus is referring to here, just so we understand. They were offended by what he said, but he was speaking truth. So that's, there's that kind of offense. I'm talking about offense where someone puts a hurdle in your path. The other thing I see here is that offense will come. Offense, Jesus said, will come. It's a part of being a human. You're going to face hurdles that other people are going to put in that path, your path. No one gets through this life without facing experiences that act as hurdles or stumbling blocks or barriers or even mountains that are going to make it tough for you to walk the path that your God is calling you to walk. A second thing I see here is to cause another person to, to fall into sin is serious with God. Woe, it says, to him that causes an offense. So keep that in mind. Even though Jesus said offenses are sure to come, he did not say hey, they don't matter. They do. It says, woe unto him through whom they come. God takes special note of the person who offends. It says even that we're better if a millstone, and we probably don't, all of us don't know what a millstone is, but it was a heavy stone. It would be better for that person if he had a, at a young age or innocent age, if he'd have been in a millstone around his neck and thrown in, no possible chance of survival. So that's a pretty serious issue. The third thing here seems rather ob obvious, but we, forgiveness is for wrongs. That's why we need to forgive. Forgive wrongs. Verse 3, if thy brother trespass against thee, if thy brother does, it says brother, Thy brother does something wrong against thee. Forgiveness is for that. And here he's saying how he's giving instruction here on how we are to respond to actual wrongs. When we are wronged, brothers and sisters, we are to forgive. And sometimes we fall into this way of, or this trap, maybe we could say, of what he did was so wrong, I feel justified in not forgiving him. Yeah, I can forgive something, just some little thing. I can overlook it. Well, fine. Yes, I think we should. It's not necessary to forgive when it really is no offense to us, even though it may 
So some people cause an offense. But what that person did was so wrong that we justify ourselves and say, and, and another point I'd like to make is when we truly need to forgive, when it really has hurt us, and we forgive, willingly forgive, we're not saying it doesn't matter. And we'll talk about that in a little bit as well. A fourth point that I'd like to make from this passage Forgiveness does not take away the need for rebuke. When we look at other teachings, this is just one of the teachings, this passage of Jesus, and we have Jesus' own example. This isn't necessarily a four-point pattern of how we go about forgiving. Sometimes we don't rebuke. But we still, Jesus at times didn't rebuke. In fact, Jesus probably forgave those. Remember when he said, forgive them, Father, they don't know what they're doing. He didn't rebuke them, he forgave them. So just because it says to rebuke here doesn't mean, but sometimes it is in order to rebuke. He didn't, he's not saying here that we, always must rebuke before forgiving or that the offender must repent before we can forgive. We know by Jesus' own example that wasn't the case. And other teachings that he has would show that we are to forgive regardless if that person repents or not comes to us. Question that I have, so then what is forgiveness? It may help to know what it is by looking at what it isn't. Forgiveness, friends, is not denial. Some of the things that can happen that are really tough. When I think of unfaithfulness by one's spouse... Or I think of being subjected to an abusive temper. Literally, children have been beat. Spouses have been beat. Beaten. Or sexual abuse. These offenses can be so painful that the mind goes numb trying to process what has happened or maybe what's continuing to happen. So when the Bible says that we are to forgive, perhaps the confused Christian believes to forgive means putting this terrible offense out of mind. Is that what forgiveness is? I need to just somehow shove that thing in the back closet, close the door, keep it in there, I need to forgive and forget, forgive, forget, forget. Friends, that's not what forgiveness is. I don't think it is. You're not going to have victory that way.
And so I'll go on from there and have nothing more to do with the feelings that come from this experience. To stop feeling isn't the answer. This isn't forgiveness, it's denial. We cannot truly forgive what we refuse to look at. Denial never brought true forgiveness. When in denial, we train ourselves not to feel. We, we avoid being vulnerable. We don't want to get hurt like that again. So let's not, let's not even feel that. Let's not confront that. We put up barriers to closeness. We learn to twist, somehow twist the past when we deny. And when we're trying to deal with some of those painful experiences that happened in the past. And I think these patterns, when we're in that kind of a pattern, we have, they have a negative effect on the way we relate to others. And I've been close to people that have experienced abuse in their past. One of the One of the questions that we ask sometimes, where was Jesus during that? Why did that happen? Well, Jesus was there, actually. That's also a way to be, to have, to, to overcome some of those issues is to, to share with that person that Jesus was there. His heart was broken for you. Forgiveness does not require that I forget. We hear the old saying, forgive and forget. And I don't say there is some truth, I think, in that saying. As forgiveness takes place, healing sets in. The soreness leaves and only a scar remains. Some scars never go away completely. Physical abuse some people have, it's affected them the rest of their lives. The damage done to their physical bodies, emotional abuse, there's scars there that maybe will never quite overcome. Spiritual abuse also can have scars. We may never be what we might have been. A person may never be what he may have been if it wouldn't have been for that abuse. That's the reality of life. But although forgiveness may not erase a memory, erase a memory, it does affect how one remembers. And the best example that I know in Scripture of this is in Genesis 50. Think about this lad 
I don't know, was he 17 maybe, somewhere in there, whose brothers, his blood brothers, half-brothers, most of them, took him and sold him to foreigners as a slave. That's pretty horrendous, isn't it? People that he loved, a father that loved him, he was ripped away from that and he was sold. Brothers were jealous. And so we know the story there. I'm not going to go into the story, but after Jacob, when he was sick on his deathbed, as I recall, he reminded his Joseph wasn't present at that time, and he reminded the brothers that you need to go to him and make sure that things are okay. So after Jacob died, his brothers came to him asking him not to settle the score. They knew they had it coming. And he was in, Joseph was in a position that he could settle the score. And they feared that he probably would. Now that dad's gone, he's going to settle the score. So when they came to him and said that, notice what jo- uh, Joseph said. He didn't say, ah, I've forgotten all about that. No, he didn't say that. Here's what he said. And it, here is where faith comes in. He looked at this thing through the eyes of faith. He saw God's plan. He remembered the mistreatment, but he chose to see that God had used their wickedness for his own good purposes. Many people's lives were saved because Joseph responded correctly to this situation. And here's what he says, am I in the place of God? He told his brothers that. You're, you're fearful that I'm going to get my revenge now. That's God's job. Am I in the place of God? That's where faith comes in, I think, brothers. That takes faith. To understand that God, even it was really wrong, that I was really wronged. Faith in God can, can see the picture that God is powerful, all-powerful. He takes care of that situation. He says, am I, in the place of, am I in the place of God? But as for you, brothers, pointed at his brothers, you thought evil against me, but God meant it unto good to bring to pass as it is this day to save much people alive. So, friends, I think we put ourselves in the place of God when we don't forgive. So, simply, what is forgiveness? I'm not sure about what Lyle just talked about this lately, but forgiveness means to release. By that, I'm saying the one that's offended, he lays down the demand for a price. You have got to pay for what you did to me. He lays that down. He releases that. 
to the person that has offended him. We relinquish, when we forgive, we relinquish the right to bring justice to that offender. We understand to forgive, we need to do that. Regardless if that was physically or verbally or mentally or emotionally. Is that easy? I would say no, it is not easy to do that. The concept of forgiveness is fairly easy, I think, to understand. But to actually do forgiveness is not easy. And this forgiveness, let's point out, is for me personally. I am not in the place of God to absolutely absolve that person from anything that he has done. That's God's job. So let's remember that. We're not in the place of God to forgive sins in that sense. But personally, we are to forgive and to release. In fact, whatever sins the offender has committed must still be reckoned with before God, friends. We don't have to see to that. In fact, it says that in, in Romans 12, it says that this is one of the reasons we are called to forgive on this personal lever, le, uh, level. Let's see what he says in Romans 12, verse 19. It says, Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath, for it is written, what? Vengeance is mine. God's. That's mine. That's my role in this thing. It's not yours. You are to forgive. I'll take care of it. We don't need to fear that somehow we're going to get the short end of the stick somewhere down the line. God will take care of that. Whether now or later, God, that's God's job to take care of that. And he says, I will repay, saith the Lord. If you're an offender, don't think you're going to get by with it. Some men's sins go before them to judgment. Hopefully ours do. We bring them to the cross. But it says some men's sins follow after. We'll be judged for those sins. Let's bring them before judgment. Jesus requires us to forgive. And friends, again, I say forgiveness requires faith in God. We, cha uh, we need to change our focus from the offender to God. Let's not focus on that person that offended us. That's a mistake. We cannot get over that issue. Rather, our focus needs to shift, and we, we focus on God. Friends, forgiveness exalts Christ. Probably one of the biggest testimonies we can have to an unbelieving world. Wow. I experienced mercy. Is that what it means? Is, what, is that what the mercy of God means? An unbeliever can see it that way. In fact, in Matthew 6, 14, this is in the Sermon on the Mount, it says, For if ye forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But friends, it doesn't stop there. It says further, But if ye forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. 
Don't hang on. Don't hang on to bitterness, unforgiveness. And we could say that unforgiveness toward our fellow man is the height of ingratitude. And I could go, and I'm not going to, but in Matthew 21, I was reading that scripture, or Matthew 18, 21, it talks about that Lord that brought his servants to give an account. And one of those servants came before him and owed him 10,000 talents. And I didn't check what that is, but that's a pretty big sum. And he says, I'm, I don't have the money. I can't pay. Well, then sell him, sell his wife, sell his children, and let's take what we can get out of this thing. And this servant fell down and begged for mercy. And the Lord granted him that mercy. He forgave him the debt. Well, then this guy turns around, and we are... We can be so critical of that, and yet we have the same ad for a hundred pence. I looked up the word pence just in our everyday dictionary, and it says a penny. A pence is a penny. I don't know how that compares. A hundred pence, we could say a hundred pennies versus whatever 10,000 talents are. That's the comparison. And that's from Jesus' perspective, from God's perspective. If you are born again, your sins, like Pilgrim's Progress, Christian, that bundle that you carried on your back went rolling away at the foot of the cross. You were forgiven 10,000 talents, we could say. And we turn around and we don't want to forgive our brother the hundred pence. That is the height of ingratitude. That's what I mean. When we're not willing to forgive, neither will our Father in heaven forgive us. As we forgive others, we show them the forgiveness available to them through the work of God's Son. We are giving them a taste of the mercy available at the cross. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Father in heaven, thank you.